This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. Right now, we're very lucky to have with us from Coulter's Pharmacy, Scott Coulter. Scott, how is Tuesday going? Oh, hi, Mike. Uh, Not too bad. Tuesday after uh, holiday weekend is just like a crazy Monday, so... Well, there's there's a lot of crazy days right now for anybody who is involved with vaccine rollout, and pharmacies are right at the heart of this. Maybe we can begin with AstraZeneca, because a lot of people are kind of confused as to who can register for a second dose and who can't. What do we know? Okay, so here's what we know about AstraZeneca as of this moment, Mike, and it's a a moving target, but essentially your point of your initial vaccination with AstraZeneca is your point of contact. So in our case, pharmacy, of course, was a primary point of AstraZeneca distribution. Um, What's eligible today or this week is anyone who was vaccinated March 10th to 19th with the AstraZeneca vaccine, which was mostly in pharmacies in Peel, Toronto and Windsor. And we have we may know family, friends and neighbours who went to Windsor to get that AstraZeneca shot. If they got that first shot between those dates in March, they are now eligible this week to get their second shot early. Now, the uh, rollout in Canada or in Ontario is a 16-week wait between the two doses. The manufacturer's recommendation on AstraZeneca is 10 to 12 weeks. And for those that got it, uh, March 10th to 19th, we're just approaching the 10-week mark right now. So certainly they're eligible to get a, a, a vaccination earlier than expected back at their point of initial vaccination, but realize that there's moving parts to this today and this week, and that's been dealt with over the weekend, is There's vaccine in the province that expires next week at the end of May. It's unfortunately may or may not be in pharmacies that initially were giving those doses. So we've got a concerted and and concentrated effort to get those vaccines that are about to expire back from the pharmacies where they are and into the pharmacies where the people are eligible to get those shots. So don't be surprised if it takes a few days this week to get that mechanism running and for the pharmacies to reach out and patients to be able to book those second shots but the goal is to use up that expiring vaccine before the end of may and we anticipate and it's only an anticipation that the government will continue with this process of 10 to 12 weeks so my patients who i vaccinated with astrazeneca uh, mid-april through the end of april should be hearing from me um, in a few weeks for when we're going to be able to give them their second doses early Okay, now you say hearing from you, do, do we listen for kind of a, a public announcement or is that something that people should wait to hear from the pharmacy where they got their first dose? Do we know that yet? Well, certainly the government's going to tell us first and uh, we're, we're paying close attention to what the Ministry of Health is releasing on a daily basis. We'll get that notification, of course, right away. Uh, I personally can only speak to my pharmacy and we will be um, rescheduling all of those um, second dose appointments that we made, uh, which we're going to be mid to end of August, I guess. I vaccinated about 550 people over about a two-week period. So they're all kind of scheduled for that second dose the last two weeks of August. I'm looking forward to being able to contact them uh, using technology with our booking and our waitlist service and be able to boost all those appointments up as soon as the government does two things, gives me the okay to do it and sends me the product because I don't have any left. So there isn't any to give second doses right now. Scott Coulter joining us from Coulter's Pharmacy. Okay, Scott, let's go to the newest age group that has become eligible for a vaccine, 12 to 17. Can they go to a pharmacy for a vaccine? 
yes, they can. As of last week, uh, end of last week, they are eligible to get their shot. Now, they must go to a pharmacy that has Pfizer vaccine available. Some pharmacies are getting Pfizer. I, myself, my pharmacy is getting Moderna. It's very specific about who's eligible for those vaccines. So if a pharmacy has Pfizer vaccine, they can, they can immunize first doses for anyone who has turned 12. So they have to have had their birthday. They're 12 years and up, all the way up, wide open. To come to my pharmacy, they're going to have to have had their 18th birthday or older and no more restrictions about healthcare workers, essential workers, anything. It's just, you know, 18 and up. Let's get those first doses in people's arms as soon as possible. Fantastic. Well, Scott, we really appreciate the information on this. Just got a note from James. James says, I used to drive for Coulters. Loved it. Love Scott. Great boss. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a nice. That that just lightens my day. Thanks, Mike. Well, you need it. Uh, a crazy Tuesday because we didn't have Monday to take away any of the nutty stuff. Scott, thanks so much for all of the time and keep up the great work. My pleasure. Thanks, Mike. That's Scott Coulter from Coulter's Pharmacy. So there you have it. If you are looking to get your second dose of AstraZeneca, they're still looking at that ten to twelve week window. In Minneapolis, Minnesota, police officers reportedly held a suspicion that a man named George Floyd had used a counterfeit $20 bill. And during the course of the arrest of George Floyd, he died. Later in court, it would would be found that he was murdered. And what happened there really caused for an opportunity for our world to to sit back and pay attention and for some sitting back wasn't an option it was to request that that we have more attention to what was going on and to create discussion and to create change from that discussion here we are a year later what has changed How are things different, if they are? We are fortunate enough to have with us Dr. Kathy Hogarth, Associate Professor in the School of Social Work at Renison University College at the University of Waterloo. Dr. Hogarth, thank you so much for taking some time for us this afternoon. You're welcome, Mike. Thank you for having me. If we go back to a day that should never be forgotten, we had the death of a man and we had its aftermath that continues today and will likely continue well beyond today. When you look at what took place following the death of George Floyd, and we've got other deaths that we could talk about, but this is the anniversary of George Floyd's death. How do you feel this particular incident is going to be seen in history as we look back at it? You know, Mike, we keep referring to George Floyd as a point of remembrance and returning to. And in some ways, that in itself is quite unfortunate, because prior to George Floyd, we had Eric Gardner, okay, died under the same kind of circumstances 
in custody with the police, with a police knee. Actually, he was choked to death by police officers. And we return to George Floyd. And we say that George Floyd has created an awakening. And yet I ask, why do we need to be awakened by death? Why do we need violence? as the point of opening our eyes to issues of equity and injustice, to issues of blatant historical racism. Why is it that only when black blood is shed can we be responsive? That's a system flaw. That's an individual flaw. I call it trauma porn. When we get off, on the violence when the only thing that makes our heart beat is black blood being shed. That's really troubling as a nation. And you're absolutely right. We go back. This today is the anniversary of George Floyd's murder. In, in two days from now is the anniversary of um, Reggie Paquette's death. A black woman um, at the hand, again, with police involvement, even though police were exonerated from that death in Toronto, one of the things we again need to be careful of is how we associate police violence with across the border the American the American narrative, because it's right here on Canadian soil. It's every day we are living it. What has George Floyd taught us? George Floyd continues to teach us that when we choose to be blind to injustice, people die. When whiteness leaves black, blackness dies. I hope that's a message that wasn't new for folks with the murder, the public murder of a black man. Yet, it's an awakening for us. We're talking with Dr. Kathy Hogarth. Dr. Hogarth is an associate professor in the School of Social Work at Renison University College at the University of Waterloo. And Dr. Hogarth, you ask a perfect question. Why does it take blood? Why does it take a death for people to say that they're paying attention or to start to pay attention we can go back decades we can go back centuries we can go back and back and back and point to anything what is it about a moment that seems to to be a a trigger for something Mm -hmm. why do you feel that exists i think it was the very public way that this murder occurred and not that there hasn't been public murders of this kind but this also came at a time in our, in our history when people were, in some ways, bored. We were all locked down. So our social landscape had changed because of the pandemic. And people, had, people were giving attention to things they hadn't previously given attention to because of the changes 
in our social landscape with the rise of the pandemic. We got to pay attention. But then Let's we say we weren't in a pandemic. Do you think that you know this would still be something that created what it did? Yeah. You see, I think this is one of the challenges we we won't know. And this is yet one of the things we always have to guard against. That we become too distracted with all the many other things that we don't pay attention to justice and to equity. That we can allow for injustice to take place right under our noses but we are too distracted with everything else that's going on around us. Answer to that question is, I don't know, but I surely hope so. Yeah, it's an excellent point because we're starting to find more distractions in our life. The distractions are starting to be returned to us in our lives. What is that going to mean? We're talking with Dr. Kathy Hogarth, Associate Professor in the School of Social Work at Renison University College at the University of Waterloo. Dr. Hogarth, we have had conversations, discussion. Discussion and conversations can be healthy. Has anything come from any of the discussions or conversation that, that you have seen that you think, okay, Okay, this 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 is good. This this is the right track. This is something that is going to have an opportunity to produce something, change yeah. something. Have you seen anything like that? Well, here's one of the things. For a long while, we were holding our breath, and we were thinking that it's unlikely we would get a conviction because murder at the hands of white people on black bodies have occurred for centuries without justice. Yet, we found some measure of justice in a guilty verdict. That is change. So, yes, there is that. But what also happened um, across our nation, across the world, we've seen more and more institutions, organizations, everybody is moving towards addressing anti-racism moving towards creating policies within their organizations to address racism, hiring more diverse bodies. And one of the challenges of that is we always have to resist the performances because there's a lot of talk. More importantly, we need to see concrete action. We need to see things that will happen that will change the material existence for people on the ground. And so it's one thing for us to have all of these new policies, organizational policies around hiring. And how is it changing what our organizations look like? One, how is it changing who is in our spaces and how are we maintaining them? How are we keeping there? How are we resisting the practice of racism? In our, in our workplaces, in our society? How are we doing it? How are we educating for a racially just society? So a lot of changes need to take place. 
We have seen some of them happening. Right now, it remains rhetorical because we it, they, a lot of those those things have remained performative. They haven't materialized into anything substantial. But there is hope because now we have a conversation. You and I are having a conversation. That's hopeful. I've had more conversations about race and racism, about anti-racism in the last year than I've ever had in my 20 years of doing anti-racism work. So there is hope, there is more talk. We need to move from just talk to translate it into something that's meaningful so that another black body doesn't have to die, so that no more black blood needs to be shed. That's where we need to move to. We're talking right now with Dr. Kathy Hogarth, Associate Professor, School of Social Work at Renison University College at the University of Waterloo. So when, and you bring up some very good places, whether it's society, whether it is in our workplaces, how people are going to respond. Because there has been racism for longer than one year. There has been racism for longer than two years. There has been racism for many, many, many years. Now it is interesting, Dr. Hogarth, to hear you say you want to see what actions take place, how people are are reacting when they see racism. Is that it? Yes, and you see, in the midst of all of this, so we've got a debt that created a lot of fur, a lot of talk, some some actions in terms of let's shift organizational policy. And then in the midst of it, Mike, we've got the rise of anti-Asian racism. As if anti-Black racism wasn't enough. So tell me again, when we again, when we begin to talk about racism and addressing racism, we have to realize racism isn't just one thing. There are multiple racisms. And we can't say we are addressing anti-black racism, which is a real thing, and then engage in an acting anti-Asian racism. So in the one on, on the one hand, we've seen a public outcry, Black Lives Matter. We've seen it. And in the midst of it, we see the rise of anti-Asian racism. Something's wrong <laughs> overall great point. with our structures and our systems that uphold the, superior, the superiority of a particular race of people and deny the humanity of another. Something's wrong with that system. Individually, we are only, we are, as a society, are only going to change when, as individuals, we take responsibility for what's wrong as a society. The change starts with you. The change starts with me. We need our systems. We need our government. We need our organizations. We need those in leadership to engage in intentional policy making, crafting, and acting. But we also need individuals to say no. 
something's wrong and we have to stop. We have to stop the bloodshed. Dr. Hogarth, thank you so much for taking some time to speak with us today. Thank you, Mike. That's Dr. Kathy Hogarth, Associate Professor, School of Social Work, Renison University College, University of Waterloo. All right, Joe Thornton. So, I, you know, you can go on and, and you can find those in support of Joe Thornton, those who are not in support of keeping him in the lineup. Here's what I want to say about Joe Thornton and the Toronto Maple Leafs. This guy is as inspiring an individual as there is for what he's done in the National Hockey League and for the person he is. He's as galvanizing an individual as there is. You talk to anybody who walks into a dressing room where Joe Thornton is, it's not long before they know he's there because he'll usually say hi to them or he's kidding around with somebody else. He's just an incredible human being. And he has this attitude that, you know, a team looking for a championship will thrive on. There are people saying, hey, he's 41 years old. When does he come out of the lineup? Or he was minus two in game one. When does he come out of the lineup? You're going to hear that. Here's what you need to point to. You need to go back in time. You need to go back to 1989. And you need to look at Lanny McDonald. How old do you think Lanny McDonald was when he and the Flames won the Stanley Cup in 1989? You would think, okay, I got, I got the mustache in my head, uh, 40 at least. Lanny McDonald was 36. He was 36 years old. Joe Thornton, if you want to send him birthday wishes, turns 42 on July the 2nd. So a little bit of a difference there. But here's the thing. Lanny McDonald in 1989 in the Calgary Flames run to the Stanley Cup played in 14 of the 22 games that the Flames played. He was part of a rotation with Jim Poplinski and Tim Hunter where they would be in and out of the lineup. They had some absolute veterans. And does this sound familiar? Joe Thornton, Jason Spezza, huh? Lanny McDonald, Jim Poplinski, Tim Hunter. Similar kind of thing where you had veterans that gave a lot of leadership and a lot of inspiration to let's win one for these guys, but they don't have to play every game. You don't have to pull somebody out of the lineup. You don't want to pull Joe Thornton out of the lineup. On the power play, people get questioning why Joe Thornton is playing power play minutes. Joe Thornton sees passes and makes passes that other NHLers don't see and don't make. That's a skill he's always had. He is outstanding and he still passes the puck like he is whatever age you want to give it 25 19 I don't care he passes the puck really well so that sort of thing is why you see Sheldon Keefe putting him on the power play but this is a grind and in order to win a Stanley Cup talk to anybody who's done it it takes everybody it takes everything that you have. And if the Leafs have one thing, and it's been proven with injuries to John Tavares and to Nick Foligno, they, got, they have depth. They have players who can come in. Adam Brooks can still come into the lineup. He hasn't played yet. They bring in players, and they end up playing well. That rotation will likely be there eventually. If it doesn't start tonight, it'll be there eventually. And it'll be there to maximize what a guy like Joe Thornton can bring. You can look up Denny Savard when he won with the Montreal Canadiens. Again, 
He wasn't in his 40s, but he didn't play every game. He was getting toward the end of his career. Denny Savard didn't even dress in 1993 for the clinching game in which the Canadians won. But he's another example. These guys don't have to play every game to be effective, and it allows you to use everybody. Expect that to happen with the Toronto Maple Leafs. It's not pull Joe Thornton out of the lineup. Nobody wants to do that. But the way that winning a Stanley Cup works, don't be surprised if he gets a couple of rest days here and there because it will maximize his effectiveness and it keeps him right around the team, which is exactly where you want him. So he's the guy grabbing Rasmus Sandin and giving him a hug and saying something to him that makes him feel like, you know what? I deserve to be here. I'm good enough to play in the NHL because a guy like Rasmus Sandin is going to have questions for a little while because he hasn't done it a lot. Joe Thornton's the kind of guy that puts all of that stuff to rest. That's why you need him in every situation you can possibly have him in. Let's take a break. We'll close out the show in just a moment. I'm not sure whether Thornton is supposed to be in the lineup, but here's here's who Joe Thornton and Jason Spezza are. You want to know? These guys have played many, many years in the National Hockey League. They've done just about everything except for win the Stanley Cup, if you want to throw that in there. There was an optional skate this morning for the Toronto Maple Leafs, and Let's face it, you get into your 40s, you get some aching bones, right? It will happen, especially if you've done something as physical as play the game of hockey for as long as Joel Thornton has done. Know who was at the, the optional skate? You didn't have to be there. Both Joel Thornton and Jason Spezza. That's leadership. You've been listening to the London Live Podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3. 